Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Alison Hill, State Chief Investment Officer at QIC. Each week, we invite our listeners to take 10 and to get an update on economics, markets and other topics of interest for institutional investors. Each week, I'm joined by QIC's Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Alison. I can't believe it. We've we've come to the end of the year, at least for QPods. It is. It's our last QPod for 2023. I agree. It has gone very quickly, but I think it has given me a topic that I'd love to quiz you on today, and that's a bit of crystal ball gazing. I want to know what's going to happen in 2024. It's all snowy at the moment. (laughs) Well, let's get some clarity. I might start with the RBA. We obviously had the RBA meet this week and they left rates on hold at 4.35%. And the commentary associated with that from the RBA seemed to indicate that it would probably be staying there for a while. So if we roll forward 12 months, end of 2024, where do you think rates will be in Australia? Well, where they are now, unfortunately, I don't see that there's going to be much rate relief forthcoming in 2024. You know, you've got the ongoing surge in migrants, you've got the willingness of households to deplete their savings, as we've seen just in the last uh, GDP numbers. And also then we've got the stage three tax cuts to come in July, Alison. So they're all forces that are supporting demand and therefore adding at least to inflation pressures, particularly in the service sector, which the RBA is worried about. Now, the RBA is acutely aware of the need to keep demand under check if inflation is to continue that grind lower, which means I think we'll see very little in terms of relief in in the sense of lower interest rates uh, over 2024. Okay, so that does beg the question, where will inflation be at the end of 2024, do you think? Well, exactly. That's the payoff of the RBA keeping the rates at 4.35 and some commentators are, are also arguing there may be a rate rise coming uh, in order to get inflation rates down quicker. Um, by the RBA. The, uh, even the, the markets went that route for a little while, but they've pulled back subsequently. Look, we see inflation getting close to the upper range of the RBA's band of 2 to 3% to that 3% level. It still won't be within the range. It'll be at 3.3%. We think at the end of the year, that's one of the reasons why the RBA, in our view, has to keep rates at that elevated level of 4.35% throughout 2024. Okay. Well, good news, potentially no more rate rises and a tax cut is always a welcome concept, I think, to all involved. Yeah, it's, but it's did... not all bad news. It's not all bad news over 2024. And, and also, you know, the RBA by not forcing the issue too strongly in terms of having patience with getting inflation down. It's also supporting the labour market, which we think will, well, you know, unemployment rate will drift higher. It'll still be a fairly strong labour market. Yeah, and absolutely. And while 4.35% is certainly, you know, a considerable hike from where we were uh, starting the cycle at 0.1%, it's a lot uh, lower than many of our international counterparts and particularly the states. So I might pose the same question to you. Where do we think the US is going to be at? such a critical market for, you know, thinking about what's going to happen with investments. So same two questions, if I can, where are interest rates going to be at and where will inflation be at in the, in the States? Yeah, well, that, that is interesting. It has a lot of feedback loop to us too, Alison, particularly via the exchange rate. The Fed, along with the uh, ECB and Bank of England, they've all tightened monetary policy much more aggressively Mm. than the RBA. And the US, as in Europe, uh, inflation is well on its way down uh, to the uh, Fed's target. We think 
that will allow the Fed to begin its easing cycle in either May or June of next year. And we expect the Fed to deliver 75 basis points of easing over 2024. And that'll take the Fed funds rate down from its current very elevated level of 5.375%, I think last time I looked, to something like 4.63% by the end of uh, next year. Okay. All right. Well, heading downwards, and certainly the market's agreeing with you that we'll see some some rate cuts next year. You're listening to Alison Hill and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where I'm discussing markets and economics with Dr. Matthew Peter. Matt, I wanted to change gears a little bit, if I can, and think about some big issues you think our listeners should be considering as we enter 2024. So I'm going to ask you two one, one that might be sort of a little bit more perhaps on the front of mind already, and then I might come back and ask you a bit more of a Dorothy Dixter. But I'll start with the first one. What do you think investors should be focusing on? Oh, okay. So I'll start with uh, the one, the obvious one, I suppose, is in that is, can central banks continue to engineer a soft land in the global economy, the so-called Goldilocks outcome, Alison? And that is, for those who haven't heard the Goldilocks before or are uncertain what it actually means, it just means a slowing in growth that isn't too cold to induce a recession nor too hot or a slowdown that isn't quite sharp enough uh, so that it uh, induces inflation. Either side of the Goldilocks, either growth too hot that it sees pressure on inflation in interest rates or the too cold side that sees a recession are very damaging scenarios for risk assets. So that really is the, is the issue, I think, going forward in uh, 2024 because you've got these two risk scenarios around the central case of Goldilocks. Both of those present downside risks for uh, risk assets. So the investing landscape, I think, will remain very difficult over 2024. What, what do you yeah, think, Alison? How are you seeing the investment landscape? You know, look, I would tend to agree with you on that one. I do think, you know, if you reflect back over 2023, the market has been by and large remarkably sanguine about the incredible changes that we've seen in the level of nominal rates, the level of real rates, and really equity markets have, other than the Magnificent Seven, which I think is a, is a characteristic all of its <laughs> own associated with AI, you know, markets really haven't done too much. And that is quite surprising to me. So I do think when you have a look at what analysts are forecasting in terms of earnings, which is still around that 10% mark, the data is going to be really important um, as I think mm-hmm. we're sort of getting to this part of the cycle. I think we could see some prints that are a bit too hot or some that are a bit too cold. And depending on what happens, we could also see a reaction function from the Fed and other central banks as a result, because they really want to make sure inflation is under control. So from my perspective, I think we'll continue to see a bit of volatility in the markets. And I think that actually really does make it a tricky place to invest. We've got bond markets have shown that volatility, sort of somewhat in contrast mm-hmm. to my comments about markets being sanguine. I think it's equity markets that are probably being more sanguine. Bond markets have had a lot of volatility Mm. and I think we'll continue to have that. So when we think about our traditional 60-40 or 70-30 type portfolios, that bond market volatility does make it quite challenging in terms of the shorter term horizons. And from my perspective as well, we've got a CPI plus target when we're thinking about our portfolios. Mm. And, you know, CPI is coming down, which is great, but it's not coming down at a rapid rate in Australia Mm. at least. So it's a tricky place to invest. But over the longer term, all okay. But over shorter term horizons, I think there's going to be some challenges. 
Yeah, it's really going to test investors' resolve, I think, too, you know, like um, to look through the volatility, as you say. I think that is that is absolutely right. So I think hopefully calmness will prevail, which has really mm. been the order of the day in equity markets, but it'll be mm. interesting to see. Matt, I'm going to ask you that Dorothy Dixon now. So we've <laughs> talked about maybe what the obvious, well, not obvious, but the risk that, you know, is probably at front of mind for people. But what about something that people haven't really been thinking about yet? So what's something that's on your mind that perhaps is not widely being discussed out there? Well, Well, Alison, one risk that I have been thinking a bit more carefully about lately is, whilst it is in the headlines, I do think it's been underestimated, uh, notwithstanding that press coverage. And that's this global battle we see emerging over control of the tech sector. Yes. Um, Yeah. And why I think that's been underestimated is that both China and the West, that are the two protagonists in, in this battle, they really can't back down either one of them. And they're also locked into this battle through trade linkages, which can't be easily unbroken. So if I look at China, their authorities have put just about all their eggs in that tech sector to drive the future growth of their economy. The China tech sector, when we look at it, though, it depends on exports for its markets Mm. and it depends on imports for its supply. So that locks China into global trade through that sector, which is the critical sector to drive that economy going forward. So is globalisation really dead? Uh, Alison, I don't think so. China wants or has an incentive to monopolise supply chains to guarantee its broader economic growth objectives, you know, to have that tech sector booming and guarantee China growth. But the West, which needs China outputs from its tech sector into its own production processes, is also locked into trade with China through that connection. But of course, it's wary of China's desire to monopolise production supply chains and also concerned about the risks to national security that that domination of the tech sector poses. So both sides are forced into these trade relations, Mm. but with substantial tension. Now, Alison, there's always, as you know, competitive tension in any trade relation, but this relation has such a significant existential risk, both to China and the West associated with it at the geopolitical level, that really distinguishes it from typical tensions associated with international trade, even those tensions that Trump sort of fanned with the tariffs. This is a different sort of tension. I don't think this risk is fully appreciated at the moment. I think it'll add significantly to market volatility over the coming year. So that's probably my left fielder, Alison. I like it, Matt. I think it's a really interesting one. It is definitely a complex uh, interwoven market and one that is critically important from both a you know, productivity and AI boom kind of concept, but also a geopolitical concept as we think about national security. So yeah, definitely a really good one. I like that one. Matt, I wanted to wish you and all of our listeners a very safe and festive holiday season. And I look forward to joining you all in the new year for another round of Take 10s. So thank you for joining me and thanks to all for taking 10.